Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the turnaround in political prognostication as President Biden pulls off a series of big wins after many pundits in the press were writing his political obituary. Joining us to discuss the passage of the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act is John Nichols, who is The Nation magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizenless Democracy, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. We will discuss his latest article at The Nation, Schumer's Inflation Reduction Act Includes a Smart Tax on Corporations. Then we'll look into the reckless endangerment of Europe's biggest civilian nuclear reactors by the Russian military, who reports suggest are mining the coolant intakes and other parts of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plants in what the UN Secretary-General describes as a suicidal act, while this week the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency warned that the site is, quote, completely out of control and that, quote, every principle of nuclear safety has been violated. Joining us is Bennett Ramberg, who was a foreign policy analyst in the Bureau of Political and Military Affairs at the Department of State during the George H.W. Bush administration. He's the author of Nuclear Power Plants as Weapons for the Enemy and Unrecognized Military Peril. And we will discuss his article at Project Syndicate, The Danger of Nuclear Reactors in War. Then finally, we'll assess the extent to which Putin's disastrous war in Ukraine is giving wars a bad name making it less likely that major wars between states will happen. Joining us is Dr. John Mueller, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a professor emeritus of both political science and dance at The Ohio State University. His books include Atomic Obsession, Nuclear Alarmism from Hiroshima to Al-Qaeda, Chasing Ghosts, The Policing of Terrorism, and most recently, The Stupidity of War, American Foreign Policy and the Case for Complacency and we'll discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, The Upside of Putin's Delusions, Moscow's Disastrous Invasion of Ukraine Will Reinforce the Norm Against War. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, John Nichols, who was The Nation magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizenless Democracy, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. And his latest article at The Nation is Schumer's Inflation Reduction Act Includes a Smart Tax on Corporations. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Nichols. It's great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Senate uh, passed the Inflation Reduction Act over the weekend with nothing but hostility from the Republicans. And, of course, it was a squeaker with the vice president having to cast the deciding vote. And, of course, it was not without some drama, particularly from Senator Sinema. But now it's before the House, and presumably the president will sign it soon, So this is something that in the rare category of good news, is it not, John? Yeah, I I think it it does qualify as good news. I mean, we have to put it in perspective and understand that a year ago in the summer of 2021, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and others were fighting for the Build Back Better agenda, which was uh, roughly four times larger than this and, and was a much more comprehensive approach on a host of education, healthcare, caregiving, and climate issues. So, I mean, clearly Biden didn't get everything he wanted. He got he got something that was significantly smaller. But 
if we take a look at what's in this piece of legislation, it does indeed include uh, one of the most significant investments in addressing the climate crisis, uh, not just the United States, but that any country uh, in the world has ever made. And it also includes a, a, a very robust response to some of the challenges we face as regards healthcare, uh, And it does so by taxing corporations, including uh, a minimum tax on corporations and a tax on stock buybacks, the two things that should have been done a very long time ago. So when you put the pieces together, while it's smaller than what Biden and Bernie Sanders, and frankly, I think a lot of us wanted, uh, this is a very significant piece of legislation. Well, I've uh, described Senator Sinema as a vain dilettante who's auditioning for a job with a hedge fund uh, when she is primaried in 2024. So I'm not going to apologize, but she at least in demanding that the hedge fund billionaires keep their tax loophole, the carried interest tax loophole, she did come up with an alternative, which is a tax on corporate stock buybacks, which will yeah, actually it, raise, instead of $14 billion, it raises about $70 billion. So you've got to give us some credit there. Well, I mean, credit and blame. Uh, let's, let's be clear that, that she's got her constituency, and it is the hedge fund folks. Uh, there's, there's simply no doubt of that, and she represents them very assiduously. But... Um, uh, she also showed some bargaining skills here. She came to the table uh, posing a genuine threat to uh, what really was the last chance that Joe Biden and, and, frankly, the Democrats in the Senate had to pass a major piece of legislation that addressed climate and health care and, 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 frankly, did a lot of the things that they were seeking to do. And uh, knowing the, the circumstance she was in, she found something uh, that she could put on the table and offer as an alternative to uh, deal, you know, taking away as an alternative to the uh, tax policies that she didn't want, that the hedge fund managers didn't want. And that was this uh, corporate buyback excise tax. And it's a big deal. Um, I'm not going to give uh, cinema all the credit for it. This is something that, that, frankly, a lot of activists have been working on for a very, very long time. And that, frankly, a lot of Democrats have been supporting for a very long time. But in these negotiations, because of Cinema's hardline uh, stance, a door opened where it was possible to do this. And, and I really want to emphasize, this is a big deal. It raises something in the range of 73 to $75 billion uh, over a number of years. Uh, that money obviously can go to healthcare, climate, other, other issues. But there's something else that's beneficial that comes from this. Stock buybacks are the tool that corporations use uh, basically to keep a tight control uh, of their circumstance and, frankly, often to undermine efforts to raise pay for workers, to uh, increase benefits for workers. And when stock buybacks are done, it's not just a way to, to avoid paying taxes. It's also been uh, quite frequently a tool to inflate uh, the pay of CEOs. So what we're really looking at here is something that that does address uh, one of the prime drivers of economic inequality in this country, and it's very, very good to tax it. I just wish we were taxing it at a higher rate. And again, I'm speaking with John Nichols, who is the Nation Magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight for Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizen-Less Democracy, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. And his latest article at The Nation is Schumer's Inflation Reduction Act Includes a Smart Tax on Corporations. So just to turn to Joe Biden, who um, a lot of the punditry were writing off and his poll numbers were sinking, I mean, you got to give him some credit for the fact that he, you know, he's almost like this punch-drunk boxer who somehow hangs in for 15 rounds and then suddenly comes to life again and does a, a knockout blow at the last minute. I mean, it happened during the... Democratic presidential primary campaign where he was the last man standing uh, and he was written up pretty early. And he's actually getting more done with 
this incredibly slim majority in the Senate than Obama got done when he had 59 Senate seats. I mean, it's pretty remarkable what he's achieving lately. Well, a lot has changed in our politics since uh, the moment where Obama came in with a very substantial majority. And uh, and your point is well taken. Obama imagined that he was going to be able to govern uh, in you know, more of a traditional, more of a normal sense. And the Obama years taught us that the Republicans were not going to let that happen. Uh, Biden and the Democrats in the Senate have learned something from that time. And, and they've recognized both the, the need and the possibility to do things differently. Uh, Biden has taken a lot of criticism for not moving more aggressively. But here you saw an, an interesting dynamic play out. Uh, Biden uh, kept negotiating with Joe Manchin, believing that that at some point he could get some decent uh, piece of legislation out of Manchin. That was something that an awful lot of pundits, frankly, a lot of Democrats didn't believe was possible. But Biden did. Similarly, he had a, a faith that they could they could reach some kind of agreement with Cinema that would be, you know, on balance, functional and 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 to the good. Uh, and what's what's interesting about this is that uh, Biden's faith uh, in these possibilities proven to be correct. Um, why is that? Well, the answer lies in, in a subtlety of Joe Biden that isn't talked about enough, and that is that he is one of the most experienced Capitol Hill figures ever to, to become president of the United States. Uh, he is, I don't think, as good at it, as, go as good at the negotiations and the, the pushing as Lyndon Johnson was, but Lyndon Johnson had a much more friendly uh, U.S. Senate, a much more friendly U.S. House. Uh, in the circumstance, Biden's experience comes into play and his, you know, ability to read people and to sense, you know, what he might be able to pull off. Uh, and I, so at a point where uh, he had to have some accomplishments, you know, you just take a look at, at what's what's happened in this week. Right. Um you know, some of the, the best jobs figures in American history uh, come to a point where not only have we made up for the pandemic job losses, but we've also uh, gotten our unemployment rate down to a level comparable uh, to, you know, something that we saw in 1969 or, or best since that period, uh, uh, with one exception. And uh, we've seen a steady lowering of gas prices, which was something that was a huge burden, not just for Biden politically, but for the American people who are trying to get from one place to another. And uh, you've seen some significant gun legislation passed. Uh, you've seen some other pieces of significant and, and unexpectedly robust legislation passed. And now you end up with the Inflation Reduction Act. And so uh, suddenly the guy that was being written off as not being able to manage things is starting to look like a relatively competent uh, and inventive manager. Uh, and that's that's something people look for in a president. And of course, we haven't talked about the CHIPS Act, um, yeah. Yeah. which is a major investment in chips, which have been a real problem with they've increased the cost of cars and there's been shortages, et cetera. So I don't, obviously they're not, we're not going to have chips arriving tomorrow, yeah. but nevertheless, the fact that we don't have chips is a result of this globalization mania of the 1990s, which was based upon this notion that the American middle class will take a hit from losing manufacturing jobs, but that will be more than made up for by lower prices uh, Americans paid for manufactured goods coming from China, and of course... That's reason why Walmart is so successful. But Walmart and the Walton family are probably the richest family in the world. But there's been a lot of collateral damage, and it continues to this day, does it not, John? It surely does. And look, you're right to trace it back to horrible trade policies in the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, under Democratic and Republican presidents. I mean, Bill Clinton, an incredibly bad player on all this. Uh, but Obama himself also, you know, taken some pretty poor stands on some of these issues. And uh, so, look, we ended up in a very, very difficult situation. But there's even another subtlety to this. And that is that Democrats have always been resistant uh, to industrial policy. And industrial policy is planning, right? It's, it's investing and, and shaping policies with an eye toward making sure that your economy is robust over the long term. 
This is what Germany does. This is what the Scandinavian countries do. I mean, it's what countries that, that actually want to make sure that their working class survive and thrive do. And our American Democratic Party was always very resistant to that. They never, they never really wanted to do it um, under Biden. Uh, with some bipartisan buy-in because of concerns about China's rapid growth, uh, you've seen the unspoken but very real development of industrial policy in the United States. We don't know how far this is going to go, but I, I will tell you, as somebody who's a long-term advocate of, of having an industrial policy, uh, I think that, that what's happened is quite significant. So just since you're in, in Wisconsin, What's the latest there? One of the things that uh, I know we're changing the subject somewhat, but yeah. I was astounded that quite recently Trump called the House Speaker, this rea very reactionary Republican, um, mm -hmm. you know, he asked him to, to overturn the 2020 election results in Wisconsin. We've seen how Trump's candidates swept in Arizona. And if they win, uh, then it will be the end of democracy in Arizona because, you know, these crazy election deniers will be deciding who wins. And we know they're all Trumpsters. So what's happening in terms of this Trump sweep? And the primary, uh, I think, is tomorrow, is it not, John? It is indeed. And, um, and Donald Trump was in Wisconsin on Friday night uh, for a big rally. Uh, which uh, featured all of the usual suspects, you know, people like Mike Lindell, um, making wildly wrong claims about all sorts of issues, domestic and foreign. Uh, but you focus in on, on, you know, one of the fundamental realities, and that is that whether you like Donald Trump or despise him, uh, you have to acknowledge that this is one of the most politically engaged uh current or former presidents in American history. This guy wades into races, not just at the senatorial or gubernatorial level, but right down to the state legislative level. He, you know, finds candidates he likes and dislikes, and he goes out and works for them. And it has been quite successful. Uh, I think that the pundits, a lot of pundits in Washington like to imagine, you know, every couple of weeks or so, oh, here's a sign that Trump isn't as strong as he was or that his grip on the Republican Party is weakening. But the truth of the matter is his grip on the Republican Party is strengthening. Uh, he is he is getting uh, his hands into more uh, states, uh, getting a grip on more races. Uh, what happened in Arizona was a. a a huge, huge victory for the, the Trump forces and, frankly, the forces of uh, democracy denial. It was a very, very bad result for, for anybody that, that had hopes that the Republican Party might be uh, headed in a more responsible or, or rational direction. Uh, but it wasn't the only result of that kind. You also had the defeat of uh, Congressman Peter Meyer in uh, western Michigan. And, you know, Meyer was a, a congressman who had one of the handful who voted to impeach Donald Trump and to hold Trump to account. Uh, he's was a, uh, he's wealthy, well-funded candidate, um, of the, you know, kind of more mainstream conservative block of the Republican party. And he got beat and, um, and he got beat by a candidate who was widely discredited because of his extremist views. And so you end up in a situation where, uh, when looking in states around the country and I'm very likely in Wyoming in a week, uh, with Liz Cheney, where Trump is beating the people he doesn't want. Uh, he is nominating the people he wants. Uh, there is a, it's a very troubling circumstance for the Republican Party uh, because of the direction it's going. It's also a troubling circumstance for the country because of the threat that, that is posed to the country when one party uh, goes to extremes, uh, not just of election denial, but, but frankly, uh, a hyper-partisan white nationalism uh, at the same time, it holds up an interesting prospect for November because many of the candidates who are being nominated uh, at Trump's behest in Michigan and Arizona and Pennsylvania and other states are appear to be more vulnerable to defeat in November. And so there is a very real prospect that while Trump is getting a greater grip on the Republican Party, um, he is actually in some cases undermining the Republican Party's uh, options for growth. Well, just in the last minute, Maggie Haberman of the New York Times, who's covered him pretty closely, 
she, you know, there are all these theories that he, you know, he's trying to get a get out of jail free card. You know, if he runs for announced he's running, that that might affect the Department of Justice in terms of indicting him because he'll be a candidate for president, even though the OLC decision doesn't cover that. But still, there's all these theories he wants to run to shake down his gullible MAGA people and make millions and millions, which is what he's doing at any rate. But Maggie Haberman says it's, it's much simpler than that. The guy, as we know, has got this massive ego, and he simply doesn't want any anybody else on the island. You know, he's the boss. He's the king. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't like competition. So he's just swatting them down, which I guess if you, do, <laughs> if you don't like Ron DeSantis, that's good news. Yeah, well, and Ted Cruz and, and a whole bunch of other folks, uh, Josh Hawley, at the end of the day, one of the, the fascinating realities of Donald Trump, and I've covered him for a very long time, too, is that when he goes into a competition within the Republican Party, he doesn't take everybody on at once. He targets individual candidates and goes after them relentlessly until they are effectively uh, destroyed. And then he targets the next one. He did this in the Republican Party primaries in 2016, going initially after, you know, Jeb Bush. And then it was uh, Rand Paul. And then he went after, you know, Scott Walker and then Ted Cruz. And ultimately, he knocked them all out and and became the dominant figure. So I, I do think that is the way he operates. But I would, you know, as we close off here, just emphasize, I think it's really on, on all the things you listed. It's an all of the above, right? It's it's answer E on the list, if you will, uh, because the, the fact of the matter is that Donald Trump is always about his enrichment. So the, the shakedown of, of uh, MAGA supporters is clearly a part of this. He is always about self-preservation and protection. So the worries about um, Justice Department inquiries is a factor in this. And he is always about himself. And so the desire not to have anybody else, you know, come into play, be a, a rival for the GOP is a part of it. And the final thing that I think is a huge part of it is that um, Donald Trump doesn't like to lose. He doesn't like to be portrayed as a loser. And I think he genuinely is obsessed with his uh, overwhelming defeat, seven million vote defeat in 2020 and wants to uh, you know, avenge that. So you put all those pieces together, I think it adds up to the reality that anybody who doubts he's running in 2024 is just lying to themselves. He, he's going to run again, and, and he's going to do everything he can to get the office back. Well, John Nichols, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with John Nichols, who's the Nation Magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizen-Less Democracy, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability to, for Those Who Caused the Crisis. And his latest article at the Nation is Schumer's Inflation Reduction Act Includes a Smart Tax on Corporations. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the reckless endangerment of Europe's biggest civilian nuclear reactors by the Russian military. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Bennett Ramberg, who was a foreign policy analyst in the Bureau of Politico Military Affairs at the Department of State during the George H.W. Bush administration. He's the author of Nuclear Power Plants as Weapons for the Enemy, an Unrecognized Military Peril. And he has an article at Project Syndicate, The Danger of Nuclear Reactors in War. Welcome to Background Briefing, Bennett Ramberg. Well, thanks. Uh, it's good to be back, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And there is, of course, a very bloody and brutal war going on between Ukraine and Russia. And it seems that Europe's biggest nuclear plant at Zaporizhia, which is on the Dnieper River, where it gets its coolant from, is in danger. It has been from the beginning. At the beginning of the war, it was Hadirov's Chechens that took the plant and shot it up until somebody in the chain of command finally told them that was not a good idea. And now you've got a situation where the head of the United Nations Secretary General is saying that the situation at Zaporizhia is suicidal. And this week, the International Atomic Energy Agency's Director General Rafael Grossi warned that the site is completely out of control, went on to say every principle of nuclear safety has been violated. So 
This is a real powder keg, isn't it, Bennett? No, it really is a, a real powder keg. You know, I've written a, a lot on this subject, but uh, what's astonishing, I never anticipated that uh, an invader would take hostage of a nuclear power plant and uh, hold it as uh, the Russians are. They're not only holding it, but they're using it as a shield. Um, they have uh, rockets uh, at the site, uh, which they're launching, and artillery as well. Uh, the presumption is, is that the Ukrainians will not strike the plant because uh, the Russians are... Uh, uh, because of the, the implications of hitting a, a, an active nuclear power plant and the radiological consequences that would result. But is it active? I'd heard that they they were shutting it down, but it must supply an enormous amount of the country's electricity, so I can't... Have they shut it down? No, well, it's my understanding. Of course, one has to be careful about the, the, the reporting because some of it's incomplete, but... There's six reactors on site. Uh, two of the reactors are operating. It's, it's a, you know, the largest uh, facility in Europe. And um, the Russians actually wanted to um, uh, pipe uh, the electricity, produce the plant into Russia itself. And that was a plan that they uh, announced a, a few weeks ago. Uh, but, uh, no, the, the plant is still operating. And be that as it may, even if the plant was shut down, so to speak, uh, that doesn't eliminate the risk. It reduces the risk to a degree. But you have each of these reactors with uh, uh, the spent fuel or uh, fuel holdings uh, in the reactors themselves and the spent fuel uh, uh, scattered uh, around the plant. And uh, destruction of any coolant, uh, as long as these things remain very, very hot, which they do, uh, could result in a major release of radioactive elements. And mind you, you have six plants located on site. The most risky time uh, for, for a plant is when it's operating. But nonetheless, the, 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 the uh, risk uh, remains. Uh, whether it stops operating or not because of the residual heat uh, that continues to be generated by the facility. Well, apparently, the Russian general in charge, General Vasily Vasilyev, he has said that he has followed orders and he has mined the intake valves for the coolant water that comes from the Dnipro River and he's mined uh, the plant in general and he's just following orders, you know, it's just the scariest thing imaginable. What do you know about Vasiliev's mining the place? Is that? Is well, that I understood. You know, I mean, there, there is reporting that the, the, that's right, that the intake valves were, were mined, and uh, there's uh, mines around the facility, I guess, to prevent the entry of uh, Ukrainians into the site. And, uh, you know, mind you, it, it is astonishing that this is uh, taking place. Uh, the Russians, mind you, did occupy another facility, that was Chernobyl, they did it for a month or so. Uh, there was the old re- uh, dead reactor on site. There were uh, multiple other reactors that had been operating after the Chernobyl accident, but all of those uh, are no longer operating. But you do have about, uh, at the Chernobyl site, about 30,000 spent fuel rods, uh, which are relatively cool, but nonetheless pose a risk if, uh, if the water entirely vacated from the site and there was no ignition to uh, aerosol, aerosolize the uh, material, and uh, the material could have been released. However, the Russians did vacate the site, and uh, I never understood why they occupied it in the first place. Well, but apparently they've already attacked a couple of sites in this war. They attacked, in February, a radioactive disposal site near Kiev, and yes. luckily they didn't hit the storage facility. And then in March, they bombed the Kharkiv Institute of Physics and Technology, which was thought to have a, a small research reactor operating, yes, but fortunately did. it didn't. So That's correct. Um, they've been indiscriminate so far, have they not? They have been indiscriminate so far, but they're, they, you know, with regard to uh, the Zaporizhia plant, uh, of course, uh, they didn't bomb the plant with aerial bombs, rockets, etc., with the intent to uh, release the radioactive elements. Uh, so they've abided by uh, what I would call a taboo up to a point. Again, I never anticipated occupation of the facility. And, you know, frankly, the, if, if the war goes bad for the Russians, so the question is what's going to happen to the plant? Would they uh, uh, put it in jeopardy as they departed from the plant, for example? Um, I mean, there's so many unknowns in this situation. And the radiological consequences could be severe. You know, mind you, with regard to those consequences, one wrinkle which I saw just uh, a couple of months ago in March, there was a simulation done as to where the radioactive affluence might go. And uh, the presumption of many people would be that it would go into Europe itself. But uh, this particular simulation, which was conducted by scientists at MIT, uh, her uh, simulation based on prevailing winds, the, the radiation went south towards Turkey. 
So uh, this is uh, quite a surprise as I reviewed the, uh, the documentation. Well, hopefully that will get Erdogan's attention. He's trying to <laughs> pose as a, a, a broker here, although he's completely untrustworthy. And again, I'm speaking with uh, Bennett Ramberg, who was a foreign policy analyst in the Bureau of Politico-Military Affairs at the Department of State during the George H.W. Bush administration. He's the author of Nuclear Power Plants as Weapons for the Enemy and Unrecognized Military Peril. And he has an article at Project Syndicate, The Danger of Nuclear Reactors in War. So the International Atomic Energy Agency, they've tried to get some kind of protocols signed by their member states, which is just about everybody, right? Russia, the U.S., France, all the nuclear powers are signed on, aren't they, to the IAEA? Yes, all the countries, uh, virtually every, every country uh, uh, that has any nuclear material is, is signed on to the International Atomic Energy Agency. And um, But the have, agency, they, have they been able... To, I think the IAEA have been trying to get a, some kind of protocols uh, developed so that everybody agrees not to attack nuclear power plants. Right. Well, let me uh, provide some perspective here. There is a protocol that was negotiated in 1977. It's called the Protocol Additional to the Geneva Conventions, uh, which is uh, mystifying. On the one hand, it uh, states that reactors shouldn't be bombed. However, on the other hand, if it provides um, uh, any elements that uh, can promote uh, military activity in the country, the plant uh, then becomes a legitimate target. So uh, any country can define uh, anything occurring at a nuclear plant as contributing to military efforts and bomb the plant. So for all practical purposes, the plants are legitimate targets in time of war, and there's no, there's no uh, uh, prohibition. Now, for uh, some years, uh, uh, in the 1980s, 90s, uh, there was some effort at the uh, Conference on Disarmament, to, which is an international conference that's been meeting in Geneva for now decades, and they spent a little time, a few years, uh, uh, trying to get some sort of agreement that would prohibit attacks on reactors. And um, nothing came of it, ultimately. The United States wanted to uh, uh, generate the option, or keep the option, rather, uh, to uh, allow its forces to attack nuclear plants if they service, served uh, uh, military efforts. And, in fact, uh, we did bomb one active plant, uh, where there was no nuclear material, fortunately. That was in the Iraq War. Um, and... Um, uh, but it was a small research reactor, and the Iraqis had removed material from the reactor. That's the only time where a plant which had some material and had been an active plant was bombed. All the prior bombings that uh, people are uh, familiar with, for example, the Israeli bombing of the Osirik reactor, that is the Iraqi reactor in 1981, or the bombing in 2007 of the suspect Syrian reactor, uh, there was nothing, no material in the plants. These plants were still under construction. Um, but uh, so we we have a sort of a, a taboo uh, not to bomb these plants. But the Russians have come as close as any country has to bomb or to attack certainly an active nuclear plant uh, in this war, and it's very 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 concerning. Well, it's also isn't there still a possibility of the Israelis striking nuclear facilities in Iran? Iran apparently, since it's gotten out of the JCPOA agreement has been furiously stockpiling fissile material and refining it to weapons grade. Yeah, as you note, uh, in the recent meeting between Biden and the Israeli officials uh, in Washington, um, it was stipulated that all options are on the table if we can't come to an agreement. The Israelis and uh, in Israel, I think, uh, it was also stipulated by Lapid uh, when uh, Biden tried to uh, parse the issue. Lapid said, no, no, uh, all options are on the table for Israel. We're not going to be uh, curtailed by, by any other country. And the concern there, of course, are the enrichment facilities. The radiological consequence from those facilities would not be as grave as a nuclear power plant. Iran does uh, does uh, possess one large nuclear power plant at uh, Boucher. It's, uh, it's a large reactor. Uh, I believe they're building a second plant there. And, uh, you know, this opens an interesting parallel. Uh, if uh, the Israelis were to strike that plant, and mind you, that is a civil plant. That is not a military plant. Uh, there's the possibilities, and the Iranians have threatened uh, to hit the Demona reactor, which is a weapons plant uh, in southern Israel. So you could have a tit-for-tat, uh, something we've, we've never seen before either. Well, Saddam Hussein, uh, during the Gulf War, fired a number of Scud missiles at Demona. The closest he got was blowing up the, the fence on the perimeter. Uh, but yes, the, the Iranians presumably have much more accurate missiles. 
Well, in fact, it was a simulation of Iranians mounting a number of strikes against the Dimona reactor. And indeed, as you pointed out, Saddam Hussein did launch Scud missiles against the, uh, the Dimona reactor. Uh, uh, nothing happened because the reactor itself was not hit. Uh, Hamas, by the way, has tried to launch uh, you know, small rockets against the Dimona reactor, and again, the reactor has not been hit. But it is a concern. The uh, Hezbollah has threatened the reactor. Uh, Syria at that time has uh, uh, made note uh, that the reactor is vulnerable. So the Israeli uh, nuclear reactor at uh, Dimona, which again is a relatively small reactor, but with a large of uh, nuclear waste there because it's associated with the weapons program, and that's built up over the many, many years. Uh, you could have a, um, uh, you know, for a small country as Israel, a significant release of uh, radioactive elements. But given the size of the plant, it's not comparable to the, uh, for example, to Chernobyl. Not at all. Right, but the Israeli plant is designed to produce plutonium. That's correct. It's designed to produce plutonium uh, for uh, the, the weapons program. It is a weapons, dedicated weapons reactor. And that's what the Israelis presumed when they bombed the Osirik reactor in 81 and the uh, 2007 bombing of the... Uh, the Syrian reactor, again, which was not operating. But that clearly was a dedicated weapons reactor constructed by North Korea, engineered by North Korea. And um, that is in the northeastern part of uh, Syria, and the Israelis bombed it. But no radiological release followed because there was nothing in the reactor at the time. It was still under construction. Just one other wrinkle. Uh, during the Iran-Iraq war, the Iraqis uh, bombed uh, the Boucher reactor, which was under construction. At the time, there were actually two reactors under construction in Iran. And, uh, but uh, nothing happened uh, at that time because... Um, the, um, the reactors, again, uh, had nothing in them. But interestingly enough, uh, the first bombing or attempted bombing of a nuclear reactor occurred in 1980. The Iranians uh, attempted to bomb the uh, Iraqi Osirik reactor, and uh, they did hit uh, some facilities in the vicinity. But again, there was no radiological consequence from that particular bombing either. So this is the first war, frankly, in uh, where you know, Syria, so I'm talking about the Ukraine war, where we have a serious situation with regard to not only the Zaporizhia plant, but there's uh, several other reactor sites uh, located in Ukraine as well. All are vulnerable to Russian attack. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Bernard Ramberg, let's turn to the possible solution here, and that is the 1988 India-Pakistan non-attack agreement. So there's a model that could be followed, isn't there? Yeah, it's curious that nobody uh, cites that agreement. It was negotiated as uh, India was observing, uh, India developed its nuclear weapons, so-called peaceful nuclear device, and observed that Pakistan was going forward with its nuclear program and contemplated, uh, actually, uh, there was some, some talk that it contemplated bombing the Pakistani sites uh, with Israeli cooperation. Uh, uh, but that didn't go forward, and the Indians realized that were they to strike uh, Pakistan's facilities, own, their own facilities would be vulnerable to attack, their own reactors. And they decided in the late 80s to negotiate an agreement, a no-attack agreement, and it was a very interesting agreement because it was comprehensive. Every year, both countries are supposed to reveal the nuclear facilities of, uh, of the other, and uh, to each other. And, um, and so this provides a template which should be adopted by the international community, uh, frankly, immediately. That is, re nuclear reactors are off target. Uh, there, there's no justification for bombing any nuclear reactor, period. Uh, certainly no operating nuclear reactor. Well, let's hope uh, somebody starts taking it seriously, because clearly the head of the United Nations is alarmed, the IEA are alarmed, and it's frightening to think that the Russians are mining the Zaporizhia plant to you know, blow up the coolant ducts which would then create a meltdown. So, Well, that's correct. Well, well Grossi, the uh, head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, has pleaded with the Russians to allow a visit to, to uh, better understand what's going on in the plant, the, the, safety, uh, operation, the safe operations of the facilities. There are reports that the, uh, uh, the uh, Ukrainian workers at the plant are under tremendous stress. There are some reports, and I don't know how reliable, that some of these workers have been tortured because the Russians consider them spies. So uh, this is not a good situation. And the Russians are not well fit to operate the facility, even though they, of course, have their own plants in Russia, because these facilities were remodeled to some extent after the Fukushima uh, accident. So the Russians don't have the familiarity Ukrainians have with these facilities. Well, Bennett Remberg, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. Much appreciated.
And again, I've been speaking with Bennett Ramberg, who was a foreign policy analyst in the Bureau of Politico-Military Affairs at the Department of State during the George H.W. Bush administration. He's the author of Nuclear Power Plants as Weapons for the Enemy and Unrecognized Military Peril. And he has an article at Project Syndicate, The Danger of Nuclear Reactors in War. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of the extent to which Putin's disastrous war in Ukraine is giving wars a bad name, making it less likely that major wars between states will happen. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. John Mueller, who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a professor emeritus of both political science and dance at The Ohio State University. His books include Atomic Obsession, Nuclear Alarmism from Hiroshima to Al-Qaeda, Chasing Ghosts, The Policing of Terrorism, and most recently, The Stupidity of War, American Foreign Policy and the Case for Complacency. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, The Upside of Putin's Delusions, Moscow's Disastrous Invasion of Ukraine Will Reinforce the Norm Against War. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. John Mueller. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, John. And I guess what you're saying in your Foreign Affairs piece is that Putin is giving war a bad name. Yeah, it's uh, proving to be a colossal disaster for him, it seems to me. Uh, I looked at all the reasons he put forward for invading Ukraine, and then also a lot of reasons that other people, whether he agrees with them or not, thought he might have for going there. And they all seem to be working out negatively. So one of the one of the main issues is, and very central as far as I'm concerned, is that, that Europe has been free of war, international war, pretty much continuously now for almost 80 years the longest period of time since the Roman Empire, or even earlier. Um, and so the question is, will uh, this aggression into Ukraine shatter that? And some people do worry about it. It seems to me that if you're a would-be aggressor and you look at what's happening in Ukraine and uh, and how everything has been counterproductive as far as Putin is concerned, uh, you won't be encouraged but that's not to say, though, that things could get a lot worse in Ukraine, right? There's threats to the, the Europe's biggest nuclear plant, which we're also discussing on today's program. Yeah, there's no quite. This is a really bad thing. It's bad for everybody. Bad for Russia, obviously. Bad for Ukraine. Bad for the West. Uh, bad for China. You know, it's it's uh, all around. Everybody loses, uh, and it could get worse. Um, it got really worse, I think, as soon as he started to talk about getting a land bridge to Crimea. And therefore, actually taking territory that Ukraine of Ukraine and, and occupying it, and it's going to be hard to see how he's going to bargain his way, uh, or even be forced out of that uh, that that acquisition. Uh, but it's um, going to be really painful for him, even if he does hang on to the, the new acquired territories, because it's filled with. Uh, insofar there are people there at all, uh, many of them are intensely hostile. And he'll have a, and he'll have to subsidize it, uh, occupy it, and try to police it against urban resistance, uh, which could go on decades, as happened for the United States in uh, in uh, Iraq and in uh, Afghanistan. So there's an expectation, though, on September the fifteenth, uh, Putin will declare that the captured territories are now Russian territory, and they're already moving uh, in some of the occupied areas to start those phony referendums. So it could sort of get worse in the sense that once Putin has declared the territories that he's captured Russian territory, could he therefore say that any attack on that territory by Iran or its proxies, NATO, is an attack on Russia? Yeah, he can certainly say that. He does say that and has said it about Crimea. Um, but the Ukrainians, I think, are going to continue to attack. Uh, one of his concerns, which was not completely unjustified, uh, was that after he took over or or uh, took under his wing some secessionist groups in Donbass, 
after the uh, situation in 2014, um, he was um, continually harassed by Ukrainian forces, which got increasingly good at it. And I think uh, if, if that was a problem, it's not going to go away. Uh, he's going to have to deal with continued harassment uh, and resistance from Ukraine. And this could go on a very long time. So I guess the question then, John, is will Putin learn from his mistakes or, as you suggest in your article, and maybe other people around the world are learning from Putin's mistakes? Uh, for example, Xi Jinping, although he's doing some very provocative exercises around Taiwan at the moment in response to Nancy Pelosi's visit to the island. Yeah, there, uh, it, it seems even my main concern is about whether other countries will take the lesson and I think they will, including China. Though I must say, when you get uh, 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 go into a conniption fit over an old lady in a jump in a in bright pink pantsuit, you're in big trouble. It seems to me. But anyway, uh, it seems to be the Chinese, which have plenty of problems already, particularly with COVID, are unlikely to take the lesson as something they want to emulate. If anything, they'll learn the opposite lessons of how difficult it is. Uh, whether Putin will get out, I don't know. It may be possible to negotiate something. It would have been possible, it seems to me, to have negotiated something before he took this new land areas. In other words, get some sort of pseudo recognition of Crimea and maybe some pseudo recognition of the small Donbass uh, secession points. But after he takes this land, it seems to me it's incredibly difficult. And Ukrainians are virtually unanimous in saying we will not accept that. So it looks like a long slog one way or the other. It may become less lethal day by day, uh, by, by the day, uh, but that doesn't mean it'll still continue, it seems to me. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. John Mueller, who's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a professor emeritus of both political science and dance at The Ohio State University. His books include Atomic Obsession, Nuclear Alarmism from Hiroshima to Al-Qaeda, Chasing Ghosts, The Policing of Terrorism, and most recently, The Stupidity of War, American Foreign Policy and the Case for Complacency. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, The Upside of Putin's Delusions, Moscow's Disastrous Invasion of Ukraine Will Reinforce the Norm Against War. So is it likely then, uh, John, that there will be an armistice at some point? I mean, in many ways, you do have a situation like the First World War with trench warfare. I mean, the front between Russia and Ukraine is thousands of, over a thousand miles long, isn't it? I mean, it's a huge long front. And I don't see, as you mentioned, the Ukrainians are not going to accept the annexation of their territory. So what's your sense of where this is heading? You said it's going to be a long slog. Will there be at least a ceasefire, an armistice? Um, I don't see peace on the horizon, but what do you see? It seems somewhat unlikely. The best hope would be for sort of a stalemate. Uh, and then um, hanging in there for a while and maybe eventually negotiating something. Um, and I'm not too hopeful about that. Um, the, the, uh, the, the idea of a stalemate seems to be reasonable. That might happen, uh, but I think it's much more likely to be an armed stalemate uh, in which uh, both sides uh, you know, punch, at, punch at, at each other. And the cost for Putin and the Russians continually escalates as they try to, you know, they're not very good occupiers anyway. Uh, and uh, as, as, the, 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 as the costs escalate, um, it's going to be increasingly painful, though I think it's going to be hard to change Putin. We, all we may have to do is just wait for him to go away uh, one way or the other. Uh, the, the, thing, the point of the article in many respects, though, is that how counterproductive it's been. Uh, Putin has said it's sort of his two main reasons. Uh, there are several but, that I deal, with, I deal with in the article, but the two main reasons are uh, about keeping Ukraine from joining NATO and going and going moving to the West. If anything, that has increased enormously. Uh, even before the war, uh, over half of Ukrainians wanted to join um, wanted to join uh, NATO, and now it's likely to be much higher. Meanwhile, Sweden and Finland are likely to join up with NATO, which means NATO is even closer than it was before. Exactly the opposite of what he wanted. The other is he has this idea that somehow. Russian speakers in Ukraine are being persecuted. And basically, it's not true. There, there are some Russian speakers who welcome the invasion. would rather be in Russia than in Ukraine. Uh, but uh, overall, it's the reverse. 
and uh, he wants to increase the use of the Russian language there. But the problem is it's been going out of style anyway, ever since uh, since the Crimean thing, uh, better part of a decade ago. Uh, so the uh, so if he wants the Ukrainians to be more Russian speaking, the opposite has actually happened. Uh, and I think a lot. What's really impressive is how much Russian speakers have supported Ukraine, not Russia. So, given what you've just told us, particularly with the idea that you know he wanted to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO, when in fact <laughs> Ukraine is becoming a de facto NATO state, they're using uh, NATO weaponry, and then on top of that. As you mentioned, Finland and Sweden are joining NATO, and Finland has a long border with Russia, so that's more of an encirclement, the very thing that Putin's always been paranoid about. So, But does this also mean, though, that there's going to be more military spending? I mean, already it looks like there's the beginnings of an arms race between the U.S. and China, and then if there's an arms race between NATO and Russia, this is not the direction that we should be going in, surely, yeah, with all the other human needs that are being uh, shunted aside by this defense spending. Yeah, I, I, I certainly agree with that. It's, it, it's a really unfortunate thing, but uh, the, uh, the continued supplying of Ukraine is likely to continue, and Russia is going to have to be spending more and more on force, forces as well. So it doesn't bode well for disarmament. But I don't think it bodes for further international war in other places. Many countries have mis- disputes with neighbors, um, and I think they're not unlikely. They're not any more likely now uh, to uh, want to use military force to resolve them. It well, also been- might, it might, there, if you want to look for a silver lining, and that is not easy in this case, um, Ukraine has had a huge problem of corruption going back to the get-go, namely 1991. Uh, to give you an example, since 19, in 1991, when everything fell apart in the Soviet Union, uh, Ukraine's GDP per capita was about the same as Poland's. Currently, it's about one-third or one-fourth the size of Poland's. Poland is massively advanced, a rather comparable country, has massively advanced, and, and uh, uh, Ukraine has stagnated. The, the problem is basically profound corruption, uh, endemic corruption, uh, and it may be that as the Ukraine finally starts to be able to move toward particularly the European community, which it's now been invited to think about joining, uh, that it will finally get its act together uh, and uh, really start working on corruption. That could be really, really good for Ukraine in the long term, however horrible things are in the short term. But in terms of the idea that the lesson from this disastrous war. And of course, you know, a country's being murdered before your eyes. I mean, when you talk about Ukraine's economy, my God, they're going to be starting from scratch having to rebuild. And they have enormous amount of damage. The Russians have attacked infrastructure and and human property and, and in an indiscriminate and brutal way. So it's a huge bill for, I don't know who's going to do it. I guess there's a lot of frozen Russian money in European, West European banks, and maybe they can finance the rebuilding of Ukraine with Russian money, which would seem appropriate. But while there's all this attention on Ukraine and the possibility that most of the world sees this as a lesson about the futility of major wars, major wars have nevertheless been going on while we speak. And in Ethiopia, for example, there's been massive amounts of bloodletting and it's tribal, and it's hard to follow, and it's very opaque. And I guess it's happening in a way because nobody cares. I mean, people do care about Ukraine. I don't know whether it's because there are white people being killed, but what, what's your sense of that? Is there a double standard here? Yes, I think so. Uh, the, the situation in Ethiopia, of course, is a civil war, not an international war. Uh, international wars have actually declined somewhat, uh, but they're still happening. But there's been very few international wars over the last 30 years. Uh, as conventionally defined, it'd be this one in Ukraine, the two the Americans started in Afghanistan and in uh, Iraq, uh, and a war between Eritrea, Eritrea and uh, Ethiopia at the very end of the last century. That's not, and, and it's been declining 
throughout, as well as, of course, there have been no wars, uh, any, no, no significant international wars in Europe at all since, the, uh, since 1945. So, so there's still, there's still going to be warfare and so forth. But to a considerable degree, what has happened, and it's really a really, really remarkable change historically, is that uh, countries no longer use war as a way for, for handling international problems, for the most part. There's a huge decline in that. There used to be a lot of wars between India and Pakistan, for example, obviously between Israel and the Arab states. And there's still plenty of problems. There are plenty of border conflicts. There's interventions in civil wars. Uh, there's cyber attacks, and so far as they haven't much meaning. Uh, so there's still plenty of bad things going on. But the actual use of direct warfare to solve problems or to conquer is pretty much stopped for the first time in history. I mean, you know, Julius Caesar, I came, I saw, I conquered. That was a big deal. Everybody's, you know, that's happening all over the place. And to, to a remarkable degree, that form of behavior has declined over the course of the last uh, 80 years, particularly the last 30 or 40, um, first in Europe and then throughout the world. And uh, it, it, my hope is that this will just be an aberration, that what's happening in Ukraine, not a harbinger of things to come. So just in closing then, John Mueller, Vladimir Putin uh, recently likened himself to Peter the Great. Do you think he's going to go down in history as not so much, you know, Vladimir the Great, but Vladimir the Fool? I think so. Vladimir the Fool fits really well. Um, I, I was really surprised, I must say, by the attack at all. I didn't think he was that stupid. Uh, even if he'd been successful at taking over Ukraine, it would have been very difficult to occupy. It's a huge country. It's the biggest country in Europe besides Russia itself. And um, I think more and more people are going to say, well, you know, we want to get Ukraine out of NATO and said it's going in. Our, our economy has been clobbered. Um, uh, more people are speaking Ukrainian than Russian in Ukraine. And I think he's going to go down as basically making, uh, making a massive blunder. But ironically, of course, he's got complete control over Russia, as far as we can see, and it's a total uh, Orwellian state where right. propaganda is still holding them together in spite of all these delusions. Uh, well, we don't know if it's holding together. People are obviously afraid to say things. He's made it more and more totalitarian, and that seems to be likely to be there while he's still around. Well, John Mueller, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Okay, thank you. Good talk to you, Ian. Likewise. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. John Mueller, who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a professor emeritus of both political science and dance at The Ohio State University. His books include Atomic Obsession, Nuclear Alarmism from Hiroshima to Al-Qaeda, Chasing Ghosts, The Policing of Terrorism, and most recently, The Stupidity of War, American Foreign Policy and the Case for Complacency. And he has an article on Foreign Affairs, The Upside of Putin's Delusions, Moscow's Disastrous Invasion of Ukraine Will Reinforce the norm against war. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine
One more light goes out in America. 